Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this weekend, we're talking about our need for speed. Not that series necessarily, but our, our sort of our individual love affairs with racing games, what we look for in a racing game, what's good in an arcade-style racing game versus a sort of simulation-style racing game, futuristic racing game versus not futuristic racing game. Um, this is predicated on the fact that I have been all about racing games this past week. I played a ton of Wipeout Omega Collection, which is Wipeout HD, Wipeout HD Fury, and Wipeout... Some, 2048, I think, is the is that one. So it's basically a compilation of uh, late era, you know, later on HD versions of Wipeout. And then very recently, the last couple of days, I have been playing a ton of Dirt 4, which could not be more different uh, from something like Wipeout uh, because it's it's a off-road sort of rally and motocross and all kinds of other sort of on dirt, very, very dirty sort of racing. Very, very different from the sort of gleaming lines and, and perfect neon fusion of Wipeout. So with that very long uh, introduction of why we're talking about it, Rob, how about you? Are, are, do you have the same sort of love affair that I have with racing games? I, I really like them, even though I'm, I'm a pretty casual racing game fan. Yeah, I mean, I think I probably have a in some ways more intense relationship with them. Sure. Uh, yeah. Because like I have always been a big fan of sim racers. Like like basically any game that makes me feel like I'm behind the wheel of like a ridiculous car, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm there for. And uh, sim racing games led me to a lot of extremes like getting a track IR uh, head tracker. Oh, wow. And so like, oh yeah. And l- let me tell you, once you've done that, you can't go back. Okay. Like the moment that you can like sort of look into a corner and like your head turns in the game, it's it's pretty crazy to sort of have that ability and you're sort of like adjusting your head position to sort of get a better look in your mirrors, that kind of thing. It's 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 wild. Wow. Um, but so in the last few years, that that's pretty much been all the racing that I do is is all your more sort of sim-like uh, racing series. Probably the series I've put the most time into in recent years is the um, Codemasters Formula One series. Ah, so Codemasters, yes. I, I think, are like kind of the kings of the accessible sim racing game. Like uh, they made dirt. Yes. Uh, you know, they make uh, they make the grid series. Uh, they used to make a series, I think, called Toka Race Driver. Um, I've heard and then, of that. <laughs> Yeah, it's. Uh, I think basically it, it was a bit like the Grid series. It was kind of a virtual uh, career, racing career simulator thing. A little bit silly, uh, a little bit cool. Yeah. But the thing I've put the most time into is definitely the the Formula One series. And so, um, you know, with with that with those kinds of games, I think a lot of the focus, and we we talked a little bit about this on on the show, but a lot of the focus is about becoming like a very consistent. Uh, smooth driver yeah and so it's not quite like the arcade model where it's all about like learning to make sweet power slide turns (laughs) and uh you know just like smashing people off the road like you'll get penalized uh, if you do that and so a lot of these games becomes very much about like just sort of polishing your own performance right like doing lap after lap and just like really you know learning your breaking points learning your turning turn in points your uh, sort of the, the the visual landmark landmarks that you'll use to sort of uh, you know like coordinate your your your, your driving, um, 
And I, I really love that kind of racing game. Uh, but it sounds like your tastes are a little more eclectic. Yeah, it's it's a little weird because I'm definitely not a, anything you'd, like you'd call a gearhead. I don't I don't uh, get super into tuning cars or or <laughs> kind of anything under the hood. I'm I'm less interested in, and I'm more interested in the very lizard brain aspect of going really fast through really pretty places. <laughs> it's just something I enjoy uh, quite a bit. And, uh, you know, so Wipeout is is absolutely perfect for that because you are going ridiculously fast through ridiculously pretty places. These sort of, you know, futuristic neon, you know, metropolises and, and you know, through twisting like tubes through lava and, and whatever, aquariums. And it's all very fantasy sci-fi, you know, very, very fun and slick and, and clean lines and, and that sort of thing. Um, and, and just generally... I've always loved uh, racing games as like podcast games. Uh, we've definitely talked about this on the show, but when I was in EMT school, um, I would put on sort of the audiobook chapters uh, and listen to them as like reading time and just play Forza. Uh, I think this one was, probably, was Forza Horizon 3. This is about, you know, a year and a half ago. Uh, and that had just come out and it's gorgeous and beautiful and you can... You can turn on a lot of assists in that game. You can have like, mm-hmm. you know, the racing line. You can have, you know, simplified braking. You can kind of, you can basically simplify the experience such that you can really kind of relax and enjoy it without focusing on it too much and allow yourself to focus on something else as well. Um, which isn't to say that I, I have no desire in, in, you know, gaining skill in these games. It was just... That was a really good way for me to chill out and, and do something and also enjoy going really, really fast in a really pretty place. Um, the dirt games have always been a little different for me, though, because you can't, no matter how easy you make these games, you can never play it like Mario Kart, basically. Like, you you actually really need to get your timing right on every single turn or you're going to eat shit and completely screw up. Uh, so even with things like simplified braking and simplified, you know, AI for the other the other cars and things like that you still really need to pay attention to dirt so i'm not playing this as a podcast game like i do for many other types of racing games i'm actually really paying attention to uh you know sort of the curves themselves and the terrain itself and when it's a certain type of bumpiness versus a certain other type of bumpiness and whether it's sand or dirt or something else like i'm actually really enjoying the physics of this game uh, which is a little bit new, although I did get very, very into Dirt 2. So I have a, I have a little bit of history with Dirt. I've got a little dirty history, I guess. Yeah, I, <laughs> I played a lot of a lot of Dirt 3. Awesome. And uh, yeah. I didn't play Dirt Rally, which I, I heard was really great. And I'm curious how much Dirt 4 borrows from Rally. Because like, Rally is where they introduced, I think, a new handling model. And it was very um, sort of authentic feeling. Whereas I think the previous Dirt games had been... Uh, a little more arcadey, so I'm curious where where Dirt Four falls. But let's talk a little bit about uh, rally games because I think they're this weird. I'm not sure it is widely appreciated how intense and terrifying and like <laughs> demanding rally driving yeah. is, both in real life and in these games. Like, <laughs> you know, you're talking about. Okay, so like, let me tell you about the the, the major leap that I struggle to make with these games. Mm-hmm. With most other racing games, your Forzas, your Formula Ones, all this stuff, when you feel your car starting to break traction, that's inevitably a bad thing. Yeah. Like you need to like make sure that you need you need to make that like loose uh, like skating feeling go away and get that car back glued to the road. Like if you're breaking traction, 
it's because you're applying power, um, you know, in, in the wrong place and you're losing grip. Uh, you know, there's something going wrong. The dirt games require, like, the driving surfaces are generally too bad for you to maintain traction at all times. Yeah. Like, you're going to shimmy. You're going to slide. It's going to feel loose. And then a lot of the, the skill of the game becomes about, like, managing your momentum through these, like, low traction scenarios, right? So, like, you need to just get comfortable with the fact that, like, you're not really taking this turn in a traditional sense. You're more like pointing your nose one direction <laughs> while your car goes a completely different direction and then waiting for the road to line back up with your nose and stand on the gas. Like, these ridiculous power slides. Yeah. And it's really, really cool, but it is... It never feels secure. Like every other racing game teaches you like, this is bad. This is bad. Driving in real life teaches you this is bad. This is not a good feeling. This is not secure. This is not safe. Dirt is like, oh, you just got to, you know, <laughs> it's just a gut check. Like yeah. you got to be brave. And uh, I am not. Yeah. it. Uh, I wrote a, a little very short piece about this yesterday, but playing this game uh, one of the very first courses that you play on, you know, you can you can do the little dirt academy. There's the sort of very first race that's that's just testing your ability. And of course, it told me to be, you know, the casual <laughs> level. And then you start, you know, you start into the career mode and you start doing some of your races. And I think it's like the second uh, stage of the first race. Uh, you go to almost zero visibility at one point. It's like it's real rainy out, real bad fogs. So you can't see shit. And you need to sort of rely on your co-driver who's like, all right, we got a four coming up, left four, whatever, oh, whatever God, she that's, says. That's the most terrifying. Oh, oh. God. Yeah, explain, explain the co-driver. Yeah. Explain the yeah. co-driver. The co-driver basically is calling out what turns are coming up and what type of terrain. Like, so if there's really bad bumps or if there's, you know, water or something like that ahead. She's, it's a she in my game. I'm a lady driver. I don't know if it's a male if you're a male driver, but whatever. So she's always calling out like left four, you know, left six, left one, hairpin. And it's like, you have to get used to both the cadence of when she's saying it uh, into like the time it'll take you to actually take that turn. And also to know what those turns mean. And you actually get like a little indicator, at least playing on sort of mind mode, you get a little indicator of what that turn looks like. There's like a little... Uh, pop up almost in the top of the screen that kind of gives you the shape of the curve. So if it's a hairpin, it's obviously very, very tight. Or if it's, you know, like a, a, a lighter turn, like a five or a six, it kind of shows you that little little shoulder kind of thing. Uh, so it's giving you indications of what's going on. You can't fucking see, like at all. Like in, in this particular stage, you can't see until you are right there. And it is so scary. And it reminded me of like the most terrifying driving experience I've ever had in my real life, which was, I, I was caught in a storm in Maui. I was on vacation in Maui. And it was nighttime, of course, and we were driving back from a national park. And there was a horrible storm, zero visibility. And like this highway, this road is just on the, on the outskirts of the island, basically. Like it's just, just a big, you know, round highway. There's no guardrails. It's what? like a drop, hundreds of feet drop no. into the ocean. If you screw no, up, thank you. visibility was like zero. Oh, God. And I was running out of gas, too. So I didn't feel comfortable just sort of like stopping and waiting it out for a while. It was. <laughs> oh, man. It was real yeah. scary. It was really bad. How, okay. So comparing those two experiences, like how good is the fog and the rain and the lighting in Dirt it's 4? Good. Like how, how convincing is that feeling of bad weather i was pretty convinced i was it definitely brought me back to that terrifying feeling so 
I think it was pretty good, actually. Yeah, yeah. It, oh, I mean, it's God, a beautiful so game, shit. realistic. I'm so in. Looking. Oh, yeah. So I got I got the palm sweaty thing going on there for sure, and it was oh man, Oof. <laughs> yeah. And here's the here's the other cool thing about I think the 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 dirt games a little bit. Okay, so the the sense of speed is a weird thing in racing games because like what what I've increasingly realized is that I think for the most part. What feels fast is actually sort of when you're right on that like ragged edge of being in control. And it actually doesn't matter what speed you're going. What matters is how secure you feel at that speed. Like, um, you know, for instance, like I've driven a few cars like very, very fast in my life, but like usually it was straight line driving, right? Like it's just, you know, seeing how, see how, see how fast we can get down this empty stretch of highway. It'll be cool. And that doesn't feel really dangerous until you really start to get up there and the wind resistance starts to really kick in and the noise starts to like really pick up. But like, you're still, you're still going in a straight line. You know what I mean? Like you still got four wheels pointed straight, you know, it's, it's fine. And in a lot of the racing games I tend to play, these Sims where the, the object is to sort of keep the car under control, um, you know, you can be going you know, 180 miles an hour or something. Yeah. It doesn't feel like crazy or ridiculous. Yeah. With dirt, I feel like I'm going faster than F-Zero ever dreams of going. Oh. And then I can look at the speedometer and it's like, you're going 55 miles yep. an hour. You're going 70. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, oh boy, hold on to your butts. This is, <laughs> no human has ever gone this fast. Yep. Like I am like Starbucks, like in a Viper <laughs> uh, in dirt because like, you're not going that fast, but the problem is that like everything around. For, well, the other thing is this: your um, frame of reference is frequently like a forest whipping past you yes. at high speed. So like you're watching these trees just like appear and vanish again and again and again, and so it feels like you're in this ridiculous tunnel of you know of foliage and imminent death, imminent death, and you know you hear sort of all the shitty uh like gravel and rocks pinging off the car suspension <laughs> and it's these games feel like ridiculously high speed in a way that um a lot of games that ostensibly feature higher performance cars faster tracks stuff like that never feel this fast or this dangerous yes yes it's oh it's it's both a little bit uh frustrating at times because again I, i'm such a baby uh, playing them, I'm, I'm not, you know, some kind of uh, experienced rally game racer. So, so I do eat shit a lot and, and screw up, you know, a lot. Uh, and also, just so exhilarating. And it, it's, yeah, the fact that it's hitting me in places like that terrifying Maui Drive uh, <laughs> says like, oh, it's doing something right <laughs> for me. You know, it's really doing something for me if it's bringing me to like a terrifying memory. For sure. I, I do want to hear a little bit more about uh, F1 racing because I've never uh, I've never played like an F1 game ever. Uh, and I know there there are some modes in Forza. I, I think I've played, you know, some some of the sort of F1 stuff, but only ever dabbled. And to me, I, my understanding of F1 is very rudimentary, but it seems to me those are the incredibly, incredibly just like those are like sprints, right? It's not tons and tons of laps. It's not very long races. They're really like incredible sprints right or am i thinking of something else well they're um it's not like endurance driving okay uh but 
they are this they're, st- they're standard races they're about two hours uh usually like 50 laps unless it's a really long track okay uh, but like so they're 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 not exactly sprints but they are like single afternoon uh races okay okay uh, so like compared to something like uh prototype cars which run for six 12 hours yeah. um the, these definitely are sprints but they're not like um like middle distance oh. then, I guess. It's yeah, probably a exactly. better way of thinking. You know, for me as a runner, yeah, thinking like, middle distance is the, the right term here. Right, because yeah. if you watch something like uh, like Formula E, those cars kind of are on a sprint. Gotcha. Uh, because the battery actually runs down really quickly. Oh, wow. Uh, if you see lower levels of Formula racing, they're only racing like 20 laps or so. Okay. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the thing about Formula One is that they're probably the most... They're kind of the fighter, the fighter planes of the racing world. Like they are the most nimble yeah. of of the cars. Like they are the lightest. Uh, they're the most aerodynamically sensitive uh, because they're so light um, and because their brakes are so good. They have a ridiculous stopping power, huh. wow. uh, which can really throw you off if you're used to playing other racing games. Where like in a lot, like in in say a Forza or a Gran Turismo or something. Brakes roughly feel the way they do in your car. Like you're moving a lot faster, but like you stand on the brakes and your car takes a while to slow down. Yeah, uh, stuff like that. And so you sort of start coming off the gas and getting on the brakes as you as you approach a, approach a corner from a decent distance. Formula One, you can leave it basically until you're you know you're going 150 miles an hour. The corner is only a hundred yards away, um, and you throw the brakes on, and it's like two giant ships anchors just like whipped out from behind your car and like just wow. like planted themselves in the ground. It's it's pretty nuts. Um, the, the thing about a, a Formula One racing game is that as a sport, there's a few issues. One is that only a few people have really good cars. Okay. And so everyone else is kind of um, not really in it in the same way. Yeah. And... The Formula One games, to their credit, have kind of embraced that. Like they never pretended that the, that it's any different than that. So, like when you start a career in Formula One, you start with one of the shitty teams, and the way you succeed is not by like winning races, but just like did you do the best you could with what you had? Yeah. Uh, did you routinely outqualify your teammate? Uh, did you get better placements than people were expecting that car to that car to deliver? And if you do that, then you start getting pulled into better teams and you sort of climb the ranks until you get like a championship, uh, you know, contending car. The The other issue is that um, unlike uh, like street cars, touring cars, uh, which are not that aerodynamically sensitive, yeah. um, F1 cars are. And so the real problem there is that if they are driving too close to another car, they're driving in disturbed air, which means the aerodynamics don't work as intended, which means your grip goes away and you start obviously going slower. And so it's this horrible, like F1 has this horrible problem. And they always struggle with it where the exciting like wheel to wheel racing can only sustain itself for like a couple laps, if that. Huh. And then the two cars have to pull away from each other uh, because it's just too, it's just too much wear and tear. But but it's it's frustrating because it it kind of does mean that passing is very very hard and there's there's not a ton of it. It's gotten better about that, but it's it's a struggle. So like a good F one game becomes mostly about like 
can you turn these ridiculously perfect laps <laughs> for 50 straight laps? Can you do that? Can you have the concentration and focus to like do that? Even as you know, your fuel tank gets lighter and lighter as you consume fuel, your tires get more and more worn down. And you know, if you if you watch the sport, it's kind of crazy because you will like something I've I've realized is a couple of the really top drivers, uh, but actually the skill extends pretty far down the field. Are actually able to deliver like reliably one or two tenth of a second performance changes to a lap. Like they can be told, like you need you you need to pick up uh, a little time in sector two. Because uh, you're giving up a couple tenths to you know giving up a couple tenths to to Lewis there, so you need to you need to pick it up. And a couple laps later, you'll watch their times, and they're hitting it exactly wow. again and again. God, and it's this level of like machine like performance yeah. that if you play these sims, you realize like, well, I can't do that. <laughs> like I can do that yeah. for two laps, and then my then my lap times start to get all over the map because like I'm just I'm not hitting these marks as perfectly. They can do it again and again. So a good Formula One game kind of promotes that kind of driving, which can make them a little boring. Uh, but I actually love the going to that meditative element. Yeah. The Formula One series starts on Friday with practice, and you're not even like <laughs> basically races are like only a third of the activity in Formula One. Like the rest of the time, you're just kind of qualifying, doing test laps, trying out new parts. Um, and just kind of experiencing the track. And it's it's great. I need to... I, I'm really con- curious to watch this. I actually... Like, if there's somebody who's, like, a really good and informative streamer who plays these games, I I would love that. Because I, I obviously... Uh, I'm interested on some level, but I would need, uh, would need a little little help, a little hand-holding uh, for, for well, something like that, for sure. <laughs> Daniel Dwyer and Drew Scanlon yeah, did... are, like, super into Formula okay. One, but I don't know if they've streamed much of it. Okay. Um, I mean, they have the Formula One podcast. Right, uh, right. But, yeah, I'd, yeah, it'd be good. Uh, it's it, it's a lot of fun. You, you, mentioned you're playing, you mentioned you're playing Wipeout. Yeah, and I'm loving it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the the futuristic, the the arcade racer. Yeah. Uh, so I've, I think I've only played a very little bit of like Wipeout HD, but I don't remember anything about it. Like, <laughs> are they cars? Are they little like jets on a, uh, on a track? Like, what are they? They're like special little hover jet things, kind of. They're very, they're very long. Do they shoot at each other? They do, yes. Uh, although that's only in like certain modes of the game, right? It, the the campaign, which I, I play these games single player. I'm never going to be good enough to play like multiplayer, and that's totally okay with me. Um, but yeah, playing them like the little campaigns is basically you have your standard races, you know, three laps around this crazy, twisting, ridiculous anti gravity tracks uh, with weapons. Very, it's a little Mario Karty in that way that you know you pick it up on the track. You pick up whatever power up mines or a rocket or or things like autopilot, which puts you on like a perfect track and speeds you up or like a rocket boost. Again, very, very Mario Kart model kind of stuff. Um, or there's a lot of time trials, which I actually really love because these are very, very, very fun and ridiculous tracks to, uh, you know, to, to play on basically to go really fast on. And then there's also something called zone modes, which are sort of a time trial, but it's more I guess it's not even a time trial. You're just alone on a track and it keeps morphing into this neon hallucinogenic, uh, you know, like different colors, 
And the, the whole goal is just to survive for a really long time without hitting the bumpers, basically, or, or fall off the track, uh, which you do because they are ridiculous, you know, inverted loops and all sorts of, you know, wacky stuff is kind of going on. Uh, and those are really, really enjoyable, especially to kind of zone out to a little bit. And they're called zones, so I guess I made a dumb joke there without meaning to, but <laughs> uh, yeah. So there's several different modes and all of them are very enjoyable kind of in their own way. And they're, they're pretty well balanced, I think. Uh, you know, you're never kind of doing any one thing too, too much. Or, and of course, you can always go back and, and redo stuff. But there, there's a lot there because it's basically three, three games of tracks and cars, right? It's, uh, it's, it's yeah. remasters, prettied up remasters of three Wipeout games that I hadn't played previously. So now, now going back to that yeah, sort of yeah. dirt conversation, like, does it feel wicked fast? Oh, yes. Or... It does because it's so easy to fall off. <laughs> like, it's so easy to just fall off the track and, and completely screw up. Yeah. And, 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 you know, uh, you don't always have to restart because it is it's a fast arcade game. You, you could potentially make up some lost time. It depends how badly you crash or how badly you mess up, basically. Uh, and you do have sort of a limited amount of damage that you can take. So somebody can bomb you to hell and that's the end of the race. But that doesn't happen all that often uh, <laughs> if you're if you're careful and you kind of know uh, what the warnings are and that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, it does feel fast because there's that danger of like, yep, you can screw up at any second, any time now, any time now. You could totally mess up. So, which I think is exactly, you know, what you were saying about that element of danger and unease is what makes the speed feel fast in a weird way in video games because there's no physical sensation, right? So right. It's, it, that's what, what does it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really, really, it's really fun. I'm really enjoying it. And I, it's, it's weird. It's sort of a latent genre for me. It's, it's not something I played much since the 90s, uh, to be honest. But in the 90s, uh, as as a little N64 lover, I played a lot of Wipeout 64. I played a lot of Extreme G. I played a lot of remember Episode One Pod Racer. Like the only I do the only good thing to come out of that friggin' trilogy was that game, which was a really good kind of Wipeout game, basically. Uh, so I I sort of was playing this and was like, oh yeah, this is just like those 90s games I loved to death and and had so much fun with and just sort of enjoy that like. Now it feels 90s, right? The, the colorful, techno, you know, pumping aesthetic feels sort of retro-futuristic in a way, and that's very pleasing as well. Uh, so, yeah, I've, oh, I really, I really so, like Wipeout. <laughs> did you, like, in the arcade racer uh, theme, did you ever play Split Second? Oh, God, I didn't, but I should have, because I know a lot of people told me that that was really, really fun and yeah, weird it's, in a lot of good ways. It's it's really really weird. I can't believe we haven't talked about Burnout either. But yeah, oh, but yeah everyone yeah. knows Burnout Paradise is good and all that shit. Yeah. But but Split Second uh, is really weird. And there's there's some compatibility stuff with it these days where it can be a little fussy to get to run, or at least it was when I played it a couple of years ago. Uh, but if you haven't played it, and I think it sells for really cheap on Steam these days, it has this ridiculous Michael Bay aesthetic. Yeah. <laughs> And the conceit is you're on this like reality racing show where you're driving through these settings that have been filled with death traps <laughs> that you can trigger as the driver uh, to sort of clear your way or uh, screw with 
opponents. So like, you know, if somebody's going under a bridge, right, you can get like a little, you get a little button that says like, you can drop a bridge on that person and you, you can blow the bridge and, and it crumbles it. But then that bridge isn't going to be there, uh, you know, on the ensuing laps. And so split second is basically like, it just, it does that thing that I sometimes love when video games do this. It really embraces its own gaminess. It realizes there are no constraints that we're under here. Like, we can just do whatever we want, and we can have the lap, the the um, the 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 course layout completely change from lap to lap. Oh man! We can have amazing, ridiculous stuff happen in the background that then you will drive through on ensuing <laughs> laps. Yeah. Um, and it, so it can be a little frustrating because occasionally you will get that uh that like blue shell feeling of, of like oh this game just screwed me like yeah. I have to redo this race because <laughs> this bullshit. Uh, but on the other hand, there's there are moments like um, okay, so perfect example. There's this point. There's this race where you're like driving through a navy yard, and at one point, the first couple laps, you end up like taking this jump into an aircraft carrier, oh, um, and you drive through the interior of the aircraft carrier through its like um, below decks hangar, and then you're sort of ejected uh, out onto the dock, and you continue your race. On like lap two or three, uh, charges go off and bisect the ship. <laughs> and so now the ship is like sliding apart from itself. And like you hit, you go through the back of the ship into the aircraft hangar, but now the front of the ship is starting to sink. <laughs> and so you're actually seeing the deck like sink below you and it's turned into a sweet ramp. And oh, so you yeah. like vault onto this ramp and then you take the ramp like racing at high speed to go like taking this like amazing like epic jump back onto the race course and then on the ensuing laps like that carrier is just going to continue to sink so it's like it's amazing stuff like that that's happening like on every on every on every course uh, on every lap and i don't know i've never played a racing game i've, I've actually never played a racing game like it it is the most um i can't even remember anything but like how the cars handle they're you know they're they're fine they're loose they're they're arcade they're yeah. arcade racers yeah. but like the stuff you are seeing happening in the background um is just is just ridiculous it's like you know video games always have like really sweet sky boxes yeah. and you're like boy i wonder boy that looks awesome i wish i could go like interact with that and do that split second is like i got you <laughs> That's so good! Oh my god, that that sounds like almost like a, a Mortal Kombat approach, like to to a racing yes. game, almost. Yes. Like, yeah, over the top and then some. Have fun! Like that's that sounds really, really, really good. Um, one game I wanted to mention while we we're talking about arcadey racers is uh, a game called Road Redemption. It came out a couple of years ago in early access, and I think it might still be in early access. Maybe it's fully released now, but it is like a um, I don't know if you ever played the sort of road rash games, like the, especially the the early 3D road rash games, like the PlayStation. So I, I remember them, but I didn't, never actually played them because I think they were um when they were sort of at their height. I want to say they were like Sega games, right? Yeah, yeah, most likely. It, it, I I remember like a very I have a clear memory of like a 32-bit era, you know, late 90s <laughs> playing those, okay. and not even sure what system. Uh, but yeah, but yeah. So this game was in the spirit of those where you're on this motorcycle and it's ridiculous, it's arcadey, all sorts of wacky shit happens. There's definitely like 
God, there's weird thunderstorms where bizarre things fall out of the sky and, you know, all sorts of weird stuff. And you can kick and punch rival people on motorcycles. You can also have, like, baseball bats and, like, other weapons and things like that. And you can throw them off the stage and you can throw them into oncoming traffic. And, you know, very, it's like, the definition of arcadey. But, you know, it, it was also ridiculously fun and had a pretty good sense of speed going on as well. So that was a, that was a fun one. But... Yeah, I and of course I would be remiss, Rob. I would be so remiss if I didn't mention good old Mario Kart 64 and the secret actual best kart racer, Diddy Kong Racing. <laughs> you know, going back to my Nintendo mm. 64 rare stand uh, time, it's that game was fantastic. And so basically, your position on video games, yep, <laughs> is that for any. Any like classic console Nintendo dominated genre. Yes. There's actually a Donkey Kong game <laughs> that did it way better. I mean, in in one sense, it was a, a banjo game that did it way better. But yes, <laughs> kind of. Look, Diddy Kong Racing Wait, is amazing. It's a- it, it it's not just good because once again, good old Rare did some genre blending, and that game had like. Mario Kart DNA, but it also had 20% Mario 64 DNA, where you had to go exploring, you have to go off the beaten path. Oh, hmm. Even in races, Hmm. there were like secret keys and secret balloons and all sorts of cool stuff. There were bosses, you you know? Yeah, exactly. It was catnip for me. That's a really, really great game, though. I'm just just saying. It's it's real good, okay? (laughs) And Mario Kart 64... Which nobody will ever say is the best Mario Kart, but I I think I secretly like it better. I don't think it's as well designed as you know, like Mario Kart Eight Deluxe. The the more most recent Mario Kart is a actually beautifully designed game. I think those courses, at least at least most of them, are are very very well designed for that element of surprise and balance and having a lot of fun in a very wacky environment. I'm a little so I'm yeah. a little like apprehensive about when I get into that game. Uh, once once the Rob Zachney Switch era begins. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm a little apprehensive because... Um, so Maddie Myers just wrote a thing for Kotaku uh-huh. about how she's increasingly convinced and like has sort of observed this behavior from the AI mm-hmm. that the other drivers don't care about each other. They just care about fucking you over. <laughs> like, <laughs> the game is like <laughs> not trying to to race itself. It's just trying to prevent you from winning. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I'm like... Oh man, that could just that might leave me murderous though. That might that might not be good. You're gonna be doing the like Luigi stink face from all those yeah. <laughs> from all the memes. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I, I've always really, really, really enjoyed Mario Kart games, but I've also really enjoyed a lot of other kart races that were doing things a little differently for sure. Which What's your Oh yeah, I just just throwing it out there, Sonic and All Stars Racing. Also fantastic, maybe better than Mario Kart, but I won't, I won't like, I'm going to put that as a maybe because I haven't actually played it in a couple of years and I need to, I need to I don't to know, it back. seems like a really popular position it though. fantastic. Um, it seems like there, there's a lot of people who, who will sort of, you know, ride or die for, for Sonic All-Stars. Uh, I'm curious, what are <laughs> like, okay, let's, let's hop in the Wayback Machine okay. real quick. Okay. What's like... One or two of your like definitive, very early, like earliest like arcade racing games that you ever played. 
uh, like really stand out. Man. I mean, Mario Kart 64 is one of those because I did not play okay. uh, Mario Kart on the SNES. Even though I was an SNES kid, I certainly was, and I had an NES, I didn't play racing games until I was like 13 uh, when Mario Kart 64 came out. So that was probably my very first racing game uh, in my life that I actually really played. Now, I, I played like Excite Bike for, you know, an hour on a friend's machine and, and things like that. But this is the first one that I had that I loved and played every, you know, imaginable second of it. So that that's probably the most formative of racing games for me. And I also played, you know, like I said, a lot of those futuristic racers n- not too long after that, you know, in the late 90s. I played a whole bunch of Extreme G and Episode 1 Pod Racer. Uh, a little bit of San Francisco Rush, a little bit of Cruisin' USA and Cruisin' World, uh, which I, <laughs> I don't think they hold up super well, but they were really fun when I was 13 or 14. So I will I will say that for them. <laughs> so yeah, it, 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 I think I started later than most or on, yeah. you know, a, a platform that wasn't really known necessarily as well for racing games, but had... It had some really great cartoony racing games, for sure. And and I did play a lot of uh, snowboarding games, which are basically racing games, especially of that era. You know, 1080 snowboarding and some of the cool borders games on the PlayStation. So I, I did a lot of, like, the sports racing stuff as well. I think for me, um, so my racing career uh, begins, <laughs> with, begins with Rad Racer oh. on, on NES. Yeah. Uh which was I mean it was all right. It wasn't it wasn't like great. Uh <laughs> but it was it was certainly cool for for someone who'd literally never seen seen a game like this. Yeah. Um the sort of backdrop skyboxes um which b- believe you me, I convinced myself for a long time we're getting closer. Yeah. Uh, they were not, but I would be like, "Oh wow, like I'm in Greece and I see that like Acropolis stuff getting closer. I wonder if we're gonna get to drive through it. And the answer is it wasn't getting closer at all. It was it was just a it was just a backdrop. But that's such a beautiful uh, that sort of vision. Scrolled around. That's that's yeah. so and that like really speaks to what I like about these games like so so directly. So yeah yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it, it did. Uh, it, it would blow my mind when like there would be day night cycles. Yeah. Uh, in in those games, I remember. Um, oh man, so I remember uh, I played like. An early, you remember the test drive series? Yes, I do. I do. Yeah, I played an early one of those, and I played it on PC. And what I remember is that it was kind of really spooky in in some ways because, like, first of all, it was really it was really hard because I was playing with a keyboard, uh, which was just it was just a nightmare trying to <laughs> trying to drive. Um, and you also had to be getting like doing these point to point races. But you could get lost on these roads, like it was kind of an open world racer. So you actually needed to be like consulting your map of the area. Uh, but but the the other part of it was, I want to say like the graphics were too primitive to really have like working textures for most stuff. <laughs> so like when you're driving at night, yeah, it was like this really limited color palette. It it felt like 16 color almost. It, there there was not it was not a ton of colors, but the sky was just like pitch black. And then the road was like gray and then the countryside was like it's like barren sort of white. And the only effect I can it was like driving through purgatory or something. Like it was like it was it was like worldly, but it wasn't like 
the real world. Like you were definitely in some sort of like nether realm or, or, or something like that. And it was actually like really creepy. Like I played this game, but it always had this like oppressive atmosphere because like there was just the sound of your like engine humming along and then this like featureless black sky overhead. And then like long expanses of just like flat textured, uh, like gray countryside and farmland. And it like, and I guess the weird thing is you do see, like you do have experiences like this. If you drive in like the Midwest, for instance, uh-huh. uh, at night in winter, um, where, you know, you just look in every direction and it's just like endless expanses of just like frost, like, you know, frostbitten, uh, you know, fields and then like tiny little houses uh, off in the distance and like nothing overhead. Yeah, it can be really creepy. And that was a, uh, it was, it was a weird, it was a weird little game. Uh, God, I love but that But it was, stuff. it was interesting and, and memorable for its primitiveness. Yeah. I, I just really, really love that about sort of older racing games that they were able to put you in a place maybe more convincingly than a lot of other types of games even though you were only ever seeing those those very primitive bits and pieces those sort of things that evoked a wider world around you it was still it was really in games that did that well it was really effective and i really liked it i always wanted to drive off into the distance and that sort of thing uh because man what a beautiful world i want to go into the distance ah <sighs> I guess, uh, speaking of, uh, of a beautiful world, maybe uh, beautiful letters. You know, there's, there's something beautiful in there. We should probably go on to our mailbox. Uh, so we've got a couple of good letters here today, a good weekend correspondence in our, in our very physical uh, mailbox here. Our first letter comes from Anonymous. And so Anonymous writes, <clears throat> Hey, R&D, I'm writing this in response to the discussion you guys had about side effects last week. I find, uh, maybe that's a few cool. weeks behind. Yeah, yeah, we're a little behind. Sorry about that, folks. But, uh, you know, side effects. We're getting a lot of good letters. We get lots of good letters. Well done, everybody. We really appreciate it. Keep, keep typing. Keep typing those letters on your, on your typewriters. <laughs> uh, I found that it seems like intent is largely ignored when it comes to what is or what isn't deemed problematic in media, which seems absolutely insane to me. There have been times when media has gone out of its way to misrepresent, to poison the well, to cover up or deflect wrongdoing. And when that's the case, it is truly problematic, and it needs to be shouted from the rooftops. However, I don't think that's what's happening with the majority of what winds up being deemed as problematic media. I don't think the folks behind Outlast are trying to poison the well for people with mental health problems. I don't think the guys behind Darkest Dungeon are making light of PTSD. I don't think M. Night Shyamalan was formulating a treatise on split personalities when he wrote, uh, when he wrote Split and the same goes for Burns and Soderbergh on side effects. And if the intent isn't there, then what are we even talking about? Are we seriously going to whittle down the number of things that storytellers can mine for inspiration until there's absolutely no way that any can get offended by them? All over, uh, something far more often has no malicious intent whatsoever. Intent can be the difference between a fine and and serious jail time. We're not going to take into account when it comes to media. Considering that all storytelling draws inspiration from some aspect of life, then in turn, nearly anything can be found offensive. Someone or another is going to, uh, will, will, sorry, they will find it offensive. Which is why I think, at the end of the day, intent is the most important thing here. Everybody's got a right to be offended about whatever they want. Uh, why don't they have a right to not be offended? 
and I, and I don't want the specter of being problematic depriving me for some really cool mechanics, I love Darkest Dungeon, and stories because for some reason it seems that when it comes to media intent, uh, media intent isn't being taken into account. All right, all right, Anonymous. All right, we're gonna, we're gonna dig in here, ready? All right, get your coffee, get your tea, get your, get, you know, whatever beverage you need. So I actually think that intent is important, but I don't think it's the only thing. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I do I do genuinely attempt to consider intent. I do think intent matters. I, I'm not one of these uh, intentions pave the road to hell. Good intentions pave the road to hell, people. I think it does. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, landed a few bricks there for sure, but I don't know if it's, uh, you know, paving the whole, the whole route, I guess, if you want to go belabor that metaphor a little bit. Uh, but but the actual effects in the real world also matter. I don't think it's an all or one kind of thing. I think all sorts of stuff actually matters when it comes into consideration of this sort of thing. So, for example, somebody makes a work that causes people to spout off, you know, say, Jewish, uh, you know, racial slur or slurs about Jewish people. Say, let's talk about something like South Park or or you know whatever. The intention there was not to be, oh, clearly what we really want are children on playgrounds in America to, uh, to make shitty Jewish jokes and feel bad about Jewish people. I don't think that was the intent. That was certainly the result. <laughs> like, damage was actually done. Like, people actually had a reason to be fucking pissed off and, and, and hurt was done there. So even if the intent wasn't there to hurt somebody... It, it still happened. And you need to take that into consideration as well. That's as important as intent, for sure. Well, and, you know, and, the, and there's a few things like, there are actually places where uh, intent doesn't matter. Um, you know, drunk driving is yes. a perfect example. Uh, that person didn't intend to kill anyone, yes. but they also didn't give a fuck. Right. Or at least in their, in their impaired state, when they made the decision to get behind the wheel of a car, they just didn't care enough or think about how their actions could impact others and somebody ended up paying the price and then you are looking at serious jail time. And I'm not saying those are that's an analogy for uh, you know media or right. art. Right. But I, I think to an extent Okay. There's there's something else happening here, which is that problematic is the softer word. Okay. Problematic is when is the word we use when intent is questionable or or maybe uh you know not malicious or even benign right right. we say something is problematic because while it may not have meant to impart a racist or bigoted message there's a way in which it does or intentionally or not uh sort of advance some harmful stereotypes um glorify really toxic attitudes or behaviors and at that point like you know you say it's problematic because whatever the intent here was it is also carrying the second meaning or the second interpretation that you do not have to look too hard to find that's going to cause problems uh, either in the things it promotes or in the ways various audience members who might have different experiences uh, than the creator are going to interpret this work. And that's what we say. That's why we say it is problematic. We're not saying, yo, this is racist. We're saying it's problematic and it perhaps needed to be examined a little more. And by the way, like you, like we're not saying you don't have the right to make problematic media. Like I love darkest dungeon. Like I think it is a fantastic game. 
I'm also not going to sit there though and say it's not it doesn't indulge in some stereotypes about the nature of mental illness. Um and those those might be comfortable tropes in sort of the Lovecraftian games tradition, but uh, they're also going to hit uh, people who live with or live adjacent to mental health issues differently uh, than somebody who's like neurotypical. Right. And it's okay to still like accept that and enjoy Darkest Dungeon, but also I don't think there's any harm being done if you also acknowledge that like a game like Darkest Dungeon or Outlast is also trading on stereotypes about real conditions or issues that affect people in order to achieve an aesthetic effect. That can be problematic. Um, So yeah, I mean like, you know, (laughs) you don't, you don't necessarily want to go call something out from the rooftops as as problematic. What you want to be calling out from the rooftops is, um, you know, your birth of a nations and stuff yeah. like that. Like stuff that is absolutely like with intent, intentionally like racist or, or bigoted. That's the stuff you need to call out. But a lot of times when stuff is being cited as problematic, what is being asked for is not censorship. What's being asked for is not, you shouldn't have done this. A lot of times the ask is either the creator, maybe you should have thought about this more or considered it a little more deeply, but also more importantly for the audience be mindful of what you are ingesting. Be mindful of what you are taking on board alongside this this other thing, right? There's yes. there's the text, but then if it's also like trading on on other things that maybe it doesn't have complete command over, you want to call that out to the audience so that they're aware that like, hey, there's some ickiness happening here as well, <laughs> yeah. and you should pay attention to that. Yeah, and that, and that speaks directly to the fact that none of this stuff is in a vacuum. And, and I do feel like sometimes, and this is the part that I, I lose patience with sometimes, uh, is the fact that, you know, some, sometimes folks, when they, when they get angry about this stuff, about, you know, why trigger warnings or why be so sensitive about everything. I'm not saying that this letter is saying that. I'm saying that there's an attitude out there, I think, sometimes that says, like, oh, why can't I just, why is it bad to like anything that I like? And, like, it... Uh, you know, sort of throwing it all in there. And that is that we just, we live in a wider world. And even when somebody with great intentions might not know that they're trading on stereotypes, they might not know that they're, you know, sort of putting something shitty in just because it's, you know, status quo kind of stuff or, oh, you know, whatever. It's just not something they think about. And that's not saying that they are a piece of shit (laughs) for not knowing about it, but it can be a problem. It can still be a problem. And frankly, it's really okay to have complex feelings about stuff. In fact, it's healthy. It doesn't make you a bad person to like things that have shitty issues in them. Exactly like you said, Rob, it's just being aware of some of that stuff is is the ask. That's the only ask. (laughs) Yeah, and and that's the thing, like, and and I think the important thing to stress here is when reciting stuff is problematic, it's 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 not saying like never do anything like this again, right. never make something like this. <laughs> like I actually think side effects is cool enough that like I'm kind of glad it exists, but I'm also glad I have that feeling of ambivalence and awareness that it's like trading on sort of deep seated fears that someone you love and are close to with uh, you know a form of mental illness might also in some way be a terrifying ticking time bomb right. uh, in your life. Right. That movie's that movie's horror, its suspense, is premised on that attitude, uh, which 
is a really painful and harmful attitude yes. uh, in a lot of ways. and makes it hard for a lot of people to get the help they need or to feel valuable and like they're not being a burden uh, to the people around them if they if they do get the help and if they do if they do sort of uh, self care uh, for their issues. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying don't make side effects, but I am saying if I'm sitting, if if you're sitting there watching side effects, think about what other messages that movies like might be promoting. Right? Think about where it's horror is coming from and yeah. how that might read to different audiences and i think that's i think that's always valuable it's always it's always interesting yes. um it's you know i don't think it i don't think it i think in a lot of ways it enriches um work to sort of consider it on those terms and push people to maybe do better uh than just sort of engage unaware uh with with a lot of stereotypes Absolutely. so all right. Um, our next email um, comes from uh, Denise. Okay. Um, it's weird. I, <laughs> I don't think it's Dennis. I've never actually heard him say his name. Uh, you, you can let me know on you can let me yeah. know on Twitter because uh, the problem is he's German American okay. and I read it as the French spelling of De- uh, Dennis, which is Denis. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't know, man. Is it Dennis? It doesn't seem like Dennis. I'm going to say Denis. Yeah, Denis. Like like Saint Denis. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Hi, R&D. Watching American Gods and appreciating how well it portrays its sex scenes, it occurs to me that there's a lot of media that has fairly bland, hokey, or just plain bad depictions of sex. So much so that when seeing something that is both erotic and carefully done, it almost seems a shock. (laughs) What games do you feel have tackled the subject of sex in a decent manner? It often feels like NPCs are insert coin, have sex. And outside of Christine Love's Lady Killer in a Bind, which as a gay male managed to turn even me on, uh, that may well be because it explores kink, consent, and BDSM, not much is coming to mind that even tackles the subject in a manner where I could watch it with people and not cringe or laugh. Thanks. <laughs> uh, yeah, Christine I Love got nothing. Is... What? <laughs> I got nothing. Yeah, yeah, I, I got you. I'm... There is a... There are some like somewhat more aspect, uh, abstract rather games. Uh, like Anna Anthropic made a game called Triad that was about sort of a poly relationship, and it is basically a puzzle game where three people have to share a bed, and like they talk about it, and there's a cat, and there's like a slightly Tetrisy kind of puzzle, and so it's not it's not just about sex. It's about like making space for people in life, and it's you know, explicitly about sort of a, a, a sexual theme. But yeah, it's pretty much only tiny games. Uh, <laughs> your games made by like one person or, or, or two people or three people that I think do this super well or do it with like the kind of subtlety that uh, is sort of required for, for, for this to kind of work. Uh, because if you're talking about intimacy, if you're talking about sex, like it's, it doesn't usually play well as like a big budget thing, right? I I love The Witcher Three. I even think those sex scenes are pretty good for a game, but it's not like yeah. I don't know. They're still not exactly like the the erotic and beautiful and weird things that you see in American Gods, right? Uh, the unicorn is pretty funny, but you know I, I don't think that games typically do sex all that well. Uh, it's I, I think it's one of those things that we we will maybe see a little more subtlety 
uh, kind of moving forward because there are tiny, tiny games that can do this stuff with subtlety. And and once VR porn comes into its own. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, I think. You know, no. that'll be, <laughs> that'll be like, all we need. <laughs> you know, um, Kate Gray wrote a good piece for us uh, a few weeks ago over on Waypoint uh, called How to Be a Good Kisser in yeah. a video game. And what she's exploring there is more like intimacy, not not necessarily sex. And I think sex is, sex is challenging because like, Look, depictions of sex, good depictions of sex are just really far and few between yes. in, in any media, right? <laughs> like, I mean, let's see. Uh, pornography is usually comedic at best. Yeah. Um, sex scenes in like R-rated movies are generally pretty terrible. Unless uh, you're talking about the, the hunger, then they're all pretty bad. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> uh, let's see, in the, in the 80s and 90s, by the way... Uh, the sex, the traditional sex scene is usually uh, slow pans over like <laughs> naked backsides, yep. uh, artistically draped in like high thread count shapes. Uh, that's basically like, like as a kid, I was like, okay, so sex is when two people just like, it's sort of like in Lethal Weapon Two, where, <laughs> where they just sort of lie down in a nice bed and nothing much happens. Yeah, yeah, right. That's so they, like they did a sex. <laughs> like, yes, like... there's there's not too many uh, movies that that are going to deal with that that will certainly make it feel romantically charged. Yeah. Um, whereas intimacy is a little bit easier to pull off, and I think this is, and particularly for video games, and what what Kate is sort of getting at in in her piece for for Waypoint is just um, a lot of it is the little cues and the sort of dance of intimacy. Yeah. Uh, that like. That's stuff that a game can pull off. The Witcher is very good at it. Um, she cites a really good scene from Assassin's Creed Unity. Uh, a scene that is unfortunately into, uh, <laughs> unfortunately infamous uh, for the fact that it is also a scene where there's a very good YouTube of the textures melting off the models. Um, right, so, like so it's a good scene, yeah. <laughs> but you've seen two versions of it. One is <laughs> one is sort of like some sort of claymation horror show, and the other is a pretty cute makeout scene. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely rare. What's what's the sexiest uh, piece of media uh, you've ever seen? What's the or most romantically charged or yeah? What 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 sort of takes the cake for you? Because I got I got one off the top of my mind. There are actually um okay. There was a show I really really loved. It was set in uh. Please don't be lost, girl. Please don't be lost. It's not girl. lost, girl. girl. <laughs> There is a show that was sort of like the Scottish L word, but better than the actual, the L word. The L word's a lot of fun. Everybody enjoys those nice softcore scenes, but they weren't usually all that sexy. Some of them were. It, it had its moments. But uh, there was a show called Lip Service, which was uh, these, uh, I think it was Edinburgh, uh, young, young, awesome, you know, queer ladies uh, in their relationships. And there were a couple of scenes there that are actually really beautifully done and really hot and and i liked those quite a bit and of course i i was joking with the hunger but also that is an iconic love scene from the hunger the greatest uh vampire lesbian slash david bowie movie uh of the 80s susan sarandon and, and uh god Catherine Denev i can't pronounce french things Denevue? Denev uh Denev. Denev. yeah there we go uh oh that's just wonderful and um, 
you know, I I uh, I actually think our 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 friend Kalinda had some really excellent love scenes in uh, The Good Wife. Believe it or not, there are a couple of uh, actually really wonderful oh, love scenes yeah, between yeah, Kalinda yeah, yeah. and her various lovers. And uh, yeah, I, I tend to um, Kalinda. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. There was a question there. I thought here you sounded. Did Kalinda pensive. ever? appear in like did that whole weirdness with her and the main character ever go away no. or did they just become basically completely marooned on different story arcs they became the completely marooned on different story arcs and that was very that weird. So fucking weird it was this very is, this weird is why I can't, this is why i can't continue watching that show is because like the first two seasons i'm like hell yeah this is like amazing this is this is hitting all cylinders yes. and then it's just like the show i love i do not think exists past like <laughs> get three. a little weird <laughs> Yeah, it sure did. Um, so yeah, and the, and yes to the American gods. Uh, there, there is a love scene in an episode that is just, and it's not necessarily the combination of, of human forms that I am always the most into personally, but I think it's the most beautiful and erotic, gorgeous, gorgeous scene uh, between, I'll just say that it's, it's, uh, it's between two men and it's, God, it's 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 between two men, uh, from from a general background that you don't often see in in that sort of scene, and it is fucking awesome. <laughs> it's really, 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 really great, and of course, everything is sort of beautifully, beautifully, beautifully shot on that show, and and weird in the right ways. Like, sex is weird, you know, weird shit happens. Yeah. Pe- intimacy is weird. We're bad at being intimate sometimes as human beings. I think. Uh, Especially when we're young, of course. Uh, so it's it's really really beautiful when things are are done kind of with that sort of subtlety and uh, intimacy and heightened drama. So American Gods is is killing it there as our as our right as Denise is that how you pronounce it? Denny Denny uh, said Denny yeah. Uh, I mean, for me, the the sort of reigning champion of intimacy and romance for me is the scene in um. The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay oh. uh, by Michael Chabon. There is this scene, I think, on like the observation deck of the Empire State Building, mm-hmm. I want to say, where it's like during World War II and uh, the two main characters... Uh, no, sorry. It's not the two main characters. It's... Um, I want to say it's Clay, but it's, it's one of the main characters and uh, his potential boyfriend, and they've sort of been circling around it for ages. Um... And they're up there, I think it's like the winter time, and you know they're in an air like an anti aircraft observation post during the war, and the storm comes over Manhattan, and uh the entire top of the Empire State Building gets lit up with a Saint Elmo's fire, oh wow. And it is just this like unbelievably like lyrical and evocative and tantalizing passage that is just uh it's it's an unbelievable piece of writing uh that is both magical and intimate and uh you know intense it's it's fantastic um high marks to that one who did this again who's the author uh michael Chabon. okay perfect um yeah, no, you should you should definitely read that one. Need to read uh, this it's, one. It's, Putting this one on the list right here. Yeah, no, it's it's fantastic. <laughs> um, you should also look at uh, Yiddish Policeman's Union, uh, okay. and that might be an easier way to get it in his work because it's a little shorter sure. and more straightforward. Um, 
you know, our pals uh, Aaron and, and John Crichton oh, definitely. Uh, on Farscape had some scenes. Oh, some excellent um, scenes. But they're kind of cheating because everyone's wearing like leather. And I like, know. It, you know, it's just kind of bursting at the seams. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's like cheat codes are active. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it's like, ooh, look at all the straps and leather. This is going to go go some good places. <laughs> um, oh, oh, and the Americans. Holy yes, shit. Yes. The Americans There's is a, lot a perfect of, poll. A lot of good shit on the Americans. Yeah. But I think the first season has some of the best love scenes because a lot of them are sort of fraught with this... Um, sense of either impending separation or in the case of Philip and Elizabeth sort of for the first time like real developing like true intimacy yeah. and and love and I think in you know it's it's right there in the first season there there is a really intense and romantic scene that follows close on the heels of a midnight body disposal yep. <laughs> <laughs> it is you're like it's 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 a weird example where you're completely in tune with the characters because it's this weird like, all right, just got rid of that corpse, and then this kind of a, are you feeling this energy? And <laughs> they're like, yeah, we're feeling this energy. And then it's Phil Collins, you know, yeah. bursting on the radio there, which just always helps. So yeah, it's, yeah, God, that is such a good scene. Oh, it's really good stuff. All right, I think on uh, speaking of good stuff. Let's uh let's talk about our weekend projects. So Rob, is there anything uh, you're watching, reading, listening to that's uh super exciting right now? Uh so n- let's see. I've uh I just watched the third season of Turn on uh oh. on Netflix, which is the um it's the spy drama set in the Revolutionary War. Ooh. And it covers at least its first three seasons are sort of building to uh, the Benedict Arnold uh, treason, hmm. and sort of its its uh, its uncovery it's it's uncovering by by American intelligence. It's uh you know it, it is a show that starts super super rough, and and then everyone just sort of like. Let's see. A few of the characters just accept that they're going to be chewing the scene for the duration of the <laughs> of the series, sure. and they just go for it. Uh, but no, I just i I really do like it because I think there's like a good like any good sort of deep cover spy drama. Uh, as it goes on, the toll and weight of the growing deceptions piling on top of each other begins to like cause things to get really really weird. Um, and I think. One of the really cool things, and maybe this is what I'll focus on for now. Yeah. Um, there's two characters that that I that I really adore. One is um, Major John Andre, who's a historical figure, uh, who was the British uh, intelligence officer who was executed uh, right after the Benedict Arnold plot fell apart, um, and he was executed because he was caught out of the uniform. Uh, behind American lines, which made him a spy, which meant the penalty was death rather than just imprisonment. Yeah. Uh, but he's sort of portrayed as um, a really brilliant, conniving, civilized, subtle officer um, who, you know, it starts out he's just kind of the, you know, the 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 chess master on the enemy in the enemy camp. Uh, but increasingly, and increasingly, his undoing is that he becomes increasingly emotionally invested in finding a way 
uh, both to sort of reunite with this woman in Philadelphia, but also just to end this war, to find some sort of glorious success that will uh, establish his reputation and uh, get him, uh, you know, get him promoted and let him sort of go on and live the life that he wants. But the other character that I really love um, is the main character is Abraham Wolthall, and he's he's married. Uh, and to start out, sort of this loveless marriage, uh, family obligation, all that. And the first season, this woman has this thankless role where mm-hmm. she's basically like, she's not involved with the spy stuff, but she's starting to suspect. And so literally the first season is, she's the wife, but not the romantic interest mm-hmm. yeah. uh, for him. So she's like always on the outside looking in. She's, you know, your classic, you know, why won't you talk to me? You feel bad for her. But at the same time, like she's, you know, you kind of don't give a shit about her because she's on the wrong side of every issue, basically. <laughs> sure. Um, but then there's this point where she kind of discovers what's going on. And she's got this choice where she can either, like, let her husband, who she does love, and let her family uh, get destroyed by this revelation. Or she can go all in. And season three is, like, her going all in. <laughs> uh, to the point where, like, there's an almost carry thing going on wow. uh, at certain points in, in season three where she has, <laughs> she has crossed lines so completely that she has become, like, far and away one of the most ruthless and brutal characters on the show. And it's entirely 100% awesome. Like, she is getting up to stuff that no other character in the show would even, like, think of attempting. And it's, like, so audacious and crazy that it actually does kind of work. Um, and so, yeah, it's, there's, this, there's this amazing energy around that performance because this is a character that, like, with her motivations is capable of literally anything. And so it's really exciting to watch. And uh, I've, been, I've been really enjoying that. Oh, God. All right. That sounds good. I'll, yeah. Add that one to the list, too, I guess. <laughs> My infinite I mean, it's list. No, it's no The Americans. Yeah, no, that's okay. I mean, like, I've, I've, I just finished the latest season of The Americans. So, you know, I need spy stuff. I enjoy a good spy stuff, you know? Um, I guess there's a connection to spy stuff, but not really. In my very predictable, like, you know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say Wonder Woman, <laughs> which I saw last weekend. Uh, really, really, really enjoyed it. Uh, was actually a little surprised by how much I enjoyed it, because I went in knowing, like, oh, it's probably going to be pretty good, but I don't usually like superhero origin stories. I usually think they're really, really boring. Um, to the point where I fell asleep twice trying to watch Captain America, the first Avenger. I, I like... Well, no, that's because that movie sucks. I mean, it does suck, but I, I'm going to be honest. There are very, very few origin story superhero movies that I find much more exciting than that. Thor is probably the only exception because I find Thor really funny. I think that... Also not really an origin story. Yeah, kind of. Not like, really. He was always like a fucking like, hero. He's a god. Like, whatever. Yeah, yeah. It, it's like his or it's his origin of how he joins up with the Avengers and comes to Earth. Yeah. But, like, he's still Thor. It's not like this is how he became Thor. Like, literally, the first thing he's doing is, like, you want to fuck up some Frost Giants? Yep. And he's like, hell yeah, let's do that. I mean, that's, that's what's good about those movies. They know. Like, the Thor movies know that they're stupid. And they have fun with it. And it's enjoyable. And they also have, like, weird romantic comedy bullshit going on, too. Which oh, my is God. kind of great, well, given Why that. did they not let Kenneth Branagh just all of them. Oh, that was the wish. Oh my god. Ugh. Yeah. So, so like I went in knowing like oh, I'll probably like this. You know, of course I'm gonna probably like things about this. There's Amazons in it. It's about an Amazon queen. You know, goddess. What I 
I'm gonna like that. It's fine. Uh, but I was actually really, really impressed by a lot of the subtleties in it, believe it or not. It's, a, uh, you know, it's about, okay, so it's about Wonder Woman. It's about Diana. She comes from the, uh, the mascara, the, the island of, of hot Amazon women who fight and are awesome and don't really need dudes in their lives. But, you know, a dude shows up and instead of it being like, oh, he's hot, I, yeah, hot man kind of thing, it's, it's much more subtly handled. It's like, no, you know what? I'm going to go save some lives whether they deserve me or not. That's kind of the whole premise of it. And she's she's a little naive and she goes into World War One, And like, of course, there's all this stuff about like, you know, the sexism of the world, this this incredibly powerful woman in a man's world kind of thing. Uh, but it's handled it's handled with so much more subtlety than I've ever seen out of like a studio superhero movie. And there's a lot of actually really great things from Chris Pine in this movie, which I definitely did not expect. Yeah, you know, he's Captain Kirk. He's in a lot of like not great action movies, um, and and so like yeah, okay, he's hot, I guess. Uh, and then he shows up in this movie, and actually, also he was wonderful in uh, Into the Woods. So maybe I should have expected something, but he is just like this really subtly good dude who's not shitty and not sexist, and is like not really put off by the fact that there's this woman who's a better fighter than he is and kind of also awesome at life in, in kind of every way. There's a lot of like tiny little subtle acting choices. There's a moment where, you know, she's like eating ice cream for the first time and he just gives this look like, yeah, she's great. And it's it's really nice instead of it being like, look at my hot girlfriend. It's more like, isn't she the best? And it's it's this okay because the way you described it, I was like, that sounds like. It could oh be yeah, sorry, sorry. He's just so happy that she's like enjoying the ice cream, okay. and he's not just like she's hot. So it's, it's not like a creep. It's not like a creeper right, shot. Exactly. Of like her, like, sorry. Licking an ice cream cone. And he's like, yeah. Well, that's exactly like. I, here's a statement, but it's super obvious that a woman directed this movie in those ways, like in these incredibly subtle ways. I'm not saying a man could not have directed it in such a way, but it maybe wouldn't have. That's, that's all I'm going to posit here that like that shot could have been the most egregious, creepy, like played for laughs. Like, yeah, yeah. Look at my hot girlfriend eating ice cream. And instead he's like, so magically overjoyed that she's having ice cream for the first time. He's just like, oh, isn't she the best? You know, it's like this wonderful, just little twist on the same exact lines and framing and everything else that just makes that feel good instead of feel creepy and weird. Uh, and there's so much of that in this movie. Uh, there's so much of, of it being like, instead of like a whole lot of like glory shots of the ladies' tits, like it's instead it's like, no, these women are muscular and tough and awesome, but you're not going to see like a lot of skin exactly. Uh, it's it's subtle. It's very subtle. It's not like wildly different from most of these other movies, but all those tiny choices that just make up to be this movie that feels really good to watch and didn't leave me feeling like, oh, God, yeah. All right, it was fine. The way I feel coming out of 90% of Marvel movies is like, yeah, it was fine. <laughs> it's okay, I guess. Whatever. It's exciting. There's a scene I liked, you know. <laughs> and everybody else is kind of gushing and gushing and gushing on, on Twitter or whatever. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't know, man. Like, So I came out of this being like, yes, <laughs> that's it. That's what I want to see. That is awesome. And 
do they yeah. do they do much trying to link it up with the rest of that uh, awful cinematic universe, or is it kind of allowed <laughs> to be its own thing? It's only very much in the sort of overall framing device. So, so it starts in mo- the modern world in 2017, and like there's a reference to it. and that's it kind of and then it's like oh all right we're gonna go into the real story here and then pretty much the entire thing is the real story of the movie which is you know set 100 years ago in in world war one uh which is also kind of a cool setting for a superhero movie um because it's it's so dark and bleak and and challenging the notions of sort of romantic warfare in itself which i thought was an interesting choice and and pretty cool to do it that way so yeah, there's just a lot of things that I really liked about this movie, even though it's uh, on its face. Sorry, I'm going to sneeze. <laughs> yep, that was a good sneeze. Okay. Uh, there were a lot of things I liked, um, even though the structure itself and the general, you know, the, the general tones of the movie are, are very much in keeping with a superhero origin story. Yes, there's like a big shitty bad guy. Yes, there's a, you know, sort of moment of trial. Yes, there is a, you know heroine or hero goes into the world wanting to do good and 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 feels betrayed by how shitty the world is like those beats are definitely there it is not like a wildly experimental uh superhero movie but it's it's just made with that level of care and a lot of those little subtle choices that i think elevate it way beyond uh, a lot of what's out there so yeah it's pretty good i'm super into that yeah i am i am am up for that all right I mean, I hope I didn't oversell it. That's the other thing. I always, when I really, really like something, I know I get really excited and I gush and I don't want to oversell. It's on 